0: Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week we'll take a virtual road trip to West Virginia, the home state of Senator Joe Manchin, who has been and will continue to be a key negotiator on the size and scope of President Biden's Build Back Better, Build Back Better Act, the BBBA. Uh, we're going to get some home state perspective from uh, Professor Karen Coons, Associate Professor of Public Administration at West Virginia University, and two of her public administration graduate students. Uh, before we get to our guests, though, we're going to have a little in-house roundtable here just to... Talk about the situation in the Senate and why Senator Manchin seems to be the key guy. The Build Back Better Act is expected to pass the House this week, we think. Uh, and uh, then it will go to the Senate where it faces a much more problematic fate. And Senator Manchin seems to be at the middle of a lot of that. Some of the key issues are whether it includes paid family leave, whether it, uh Extends the child tax credits uh, at the current rate, whether it um, and for how long, uh, and uh, you know, tax issues, whether it's fully paid for. Um, So, look, Senator Manchin has uh, really whittled down the size of the bill since this process began, and but there's more to come. So, Tory, uh, just uh, briefly on the the reconciliation process. Now, uh, these issues that Senator Manchin are raising, a lot of them just come out of reconciliation itself, don't they? I mean, some of the problems of doing a reconciliation bill.
1: Oh, you mean some of the the the, the issues that that Senator Manchin has with the reconciliation bill? Is that is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So you know, when you, when you use this fast track process called reconciliation in order to get legislation through the Senate, there's a certain set of rules that you have to abide by. They're all uh, uh, in, in, uh, in, encapsulated by the, the Bird rule. Um, and there are some of the things that Senator Manchin is, is, is struggling with, things like uh, paid family leave um, and the electric vehicle credit for uh, union-made electric vehicles, things like that. I would fully expect the bird rule to take care of those issues and that I don't think those issues comply with the bird rule, or I should say I'm suspicious that they wouldn't comply with the bird rule. And I think they will be jettisoned because of it. So you've actually got the rules of the Senate that will be carrying, you know, dirty water for 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 Senator Manchin. He won't necessarily have to vote to excise those from the bill. Um, the Senate rules and procedure will do that for
0: him. Um, you know, Phil, uh, a lot of the focus is on Senator Manchin. Uh, one suspects, however, that he may be speaking for others who don't speak up quite as loudly. And uh, there are probably a number of people either in the Senate or, or, or in the House who, who might just take a pass and let this, this thing pass now. Uh, and might be more supportive of Senator Manchin's position on, you know, whether this will affect the deficit and the debt and maybe concerns about inflation. When it comes back to the House, do you, uh, you know, what's your sense of uh, whether there's actually some some concern about these issues that isn't uh, necessarily apparent on the surface?
2: It's always interesting when you have such a close majority, right? Democrats control the Senate by the absolute slimmest possible way. Like they have a 50-50 Senate in the President of the Senate, the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, you know, that's how they have the majority. So at any time, one senator can throw a wrench into everything. But to your point, Bob, it has an effect on how other people vote, because they know where the margins are, right? And they know who can vote for what. But when you only can win by one vote, it really affects things. So this in this case, this one West Virginia senator has just so much power because he he is the key swing vote in, in, in so many things. I'll also add, Tory mentioned the Byrd rule, which is named for another West Virginia senator, right? So here are two people who have had this outsized influence on the way things get done in the United States Senate. Uh, the late Senator Robert Byrd and the current Senator, uh, Senator Manchin.
0: Um, I'm going to... Uh, uh bring in uh Iv Harris uh in and and put him on the spot. Iv is the uh, communications director for the Concord coalition and uh you know a lot of times you get a, this uh, um this perspective that the White House uh has and the Democratic Party in general has not done a particularly good job of messaging. That uh, this is this whole thing has been about this build back better has been about whether it's six trillion or three point five trillion or one point seven trillion or one point two trillion or whatever, and uh, and it's it's not about what the the bill might uh, do for people. Uh, you know, what's your take on that? I mean, we're we sort of at crunch time here with the, the end of the year. Is it is it too late for Democrats to refocus the debate, or or you know what what uh, what what might they be talking about?
3: Well, you at the same time as a lot of this is going on, you also see a lot of political chatter about how it's doom and gloom for Democrats in 2022. Um, there's nothing they can do. They're going to lose their majorities. Um, everybody's pulling their hair out and and hitting the panic button uh, politically. I mean, obviously, it's been a, it's not been an easy six months for um, for the, the Biden administration, um, starting with the, the rise of the Delta variant, people's uh, having to force people to uh, to to take vaccines, you know, pushback from some from some private industry on that. Just the overall kind of impact of of the continued pandemic on the economy and and what that means for unemployment numbers. And so you have these economic indicators that are influencing, you know, the 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 debate on some of these domestic spending priorities such as last week's, uh, you know, we had good unemployment numbers, uh, good employment numbers come for the month of October, but then we see inflation rising. And so there's a lot of finger pointing on that. And so what you have is um, you basically have a situation where, as you said, there's a lot of pressure. I think personally, it's probably worse for Democrats to come away with nothing than it is for them to come away with something of a reduced spending bill less than what they wanted a lot less than Bernie Sanders wanted. Um, uh, but, but, but something to address some of these priorities, because I do think that at the same time um, as there are, uh, you know, the, the politics have shifted. I think that there's actually a lot of consensus on issues such as paid family leave. Um, and there is a lot of consensus on issues uh such as the, just some of the needs that what the pandemic has exposed, how critical childcare is in terms of continued you know, American productivity in, in the economy. And so I think there's a lot of support for that. I think there's a large consensus on the need to do something um, about climate change and reduce uh, CO2 emissions. And so I think with with all of that said, personally, my view is that I think uh president biden being a veteran you know senate guy that he is probably knew that he was going to get some kind of deal that's a lot less than the progressives wanted but it was something and he is a deal maker he is a traditional deal maker and so you know in terms of the messaging there's a lot that they have to do internally to try to please some of the progressives in their own caucus um and I think he's got to show them that he tried to get a bigger number, knowing full well that the actual number he's uh, that the administration is going to end up with is probably really close to Manchin's numbers. And what Manchin has said um, this this whole time, I don't think I don't buy the whole doom and gloom uh, uh, you know, narrative for Democrats, because I think if they, the infrastructure bill is passed now signed into law, that's going to start having an impact. Um, If they get some of this out, I think a lot of these are fairly popular programs. Um, I don't think you're I I think this is different from the Obamacare effect in 2010, where people were very angry about it. They didn't quite understand it. They didn't quite know what it was. A lot of these items that are in Build Back Better are designed to be politically popular. Yes, even though they're spending money, um, they're designed to address needs that a lot of constituents have that a lot of constituents, frankly, vote on. So I, I think it's going to be more of a mixed bag. Um, but I do think that the difficulty that the, the Democrats are having with their messaging right now, especially out of the White House, is there are economic realities that are hitting that they seem to be surprised by and have not prepared for adequately. And that always adds a monkey wrench into some of these you know debates over bills, especially when you get down to crunch time.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I think, uh, and uh, Tori, you might want to weigh in on this. I, I think the big problem that they have is perhaps not so much messaging, but inflation. <laughs> Uh, Uh, that's a problem
2: (laughs) yeah
1: but i I also think it's just in general on messaging it's easier to message no than it is to message yes because messaging no is fear-based right and you you play into people's emotions i mean if you you know there's a difference between a poll question that says do you support the democrats you know prescription drug plan if you know it's gonna uh mean your 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 mom and dad don't have access to life-saving cancer drugs that's an easy no, okay? That's it's, it's easy to message no, it's easy to message fear. So where the Democrats' challenge is going forward, if this legislation actually does get to President Biden's desk, is how to message yes.
0: You know, I think we're gonna have to uh, wrap it up here and, and begin our, our virtual trip to uh, West Virginia, but I've been a little bit surprised and I would say pleasantly surprised that the desire and the pledge to pay for the bill is still there. I mean, they there, we'll, you know, we'll see what uh, the 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 score is, the CBO score. But preliminary indications are, if it's off, it's not off by a hell of a lot. So it's it's not like they just abandoned things and said, "What the hell? Let's just add to the debt and by several, you know, uh, let's just pretend the deficits don't matter." And that's right, an right. issue that uh, certainly uh, Senator Manchin has put on the uh, on the table. Um, so. Uh, with that, uh, with that consideration, um, Tori's going to stay with me right now, and uh, we're going to bring in uh, Karen Coons from uh, West Virginia University, and then a couple of her graduate students. And later in the conversation, Phil Smith will rejoin us uh, to uh, to talk to the graduate students. Uh, and now let's bring in Karen Coons. Welcome to the program. Karen and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future.
4: Thanks, Bob. Thanks. It's a joy to be here.
0: Well, um, you know, it's it's safe to say that uh, Senator Manchin has had a profound effect on the size and <laughs> scope of uh, President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. Um, you know, it originally was targeted at about three point five trillion coming out of the budget resolution, and and it got down to about now where it's one point seven five trillion, which is very close to what uh, Senator Manchin said he would be willing to go for uh, over the summer. And, uh, you know, he's argued that the new spending could be uh, is not sufficiently targeted. It could cause uh, inflation that he's worried about. He's worried about the uh, the debt. And so with with Senator Manchin playing such a, a large role on the national stage right now, uh, we thought it'd be a good idea to check in with uh, with his home state. And Karen, just as a general question, um, how is this playing at home? I think
4: overall, the general feeling with, with about Senator Manchin is that there's a huge disconnect between him and his state. You want to unpack that? <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, the things that he tends to go for the state the state is one of the poorest in the nation um, we have low education rates we rank 40 48 49th 50th in most things um, the child care tax credit would be an extraordinary benefit for us it's it's already raised people some a, a huge number of people out of actually hundreds of thousands out of poverty in the state to continue it would be a boon um, and so mansion wants He's up for he he demands the the expert. He wanted the sunset, but now that he's getting it, he's complaining that it's um, it's skewing the numbers. But instead of advocating for things like that, like the child care tax credit, the um, the permanent EITC, um, paid family leave, things like that, those are the things that would benefit the state. And instead, he's complaining that these are budget busters. These are budget gimmicks. So the, the sunsetting them early are budget gimmicks. We should um, ex- complete have them have them go for the full the full ten years or, or make them permanent. But then, if we make them permanent, we bust the budget rates, the budget cap that he wants. And there's already talk. There's I read something yesterday or today about him saying that now he's thinking that the top the top line should be 1.2 instead of 1.75.
1: Oh my goodness, moving the goalposts.
0: I haven't heard yeah. that one that's yeah. that's that's, that's yeah. breaking news <laughs> Yeah
4: I, it's I I was either a tweet or a to, a to a story or a story that I saw and I didn't get
1: a chance to read the details and maybe it was just him just uh one of the things that that mansion's been saying here in Washington DC is that the build back better act you know the, the which is you know anywhere between 1.75 to 2 2 trillion dollars depending upon who's scoring it and and what's in and what's out um uh would just further add to inflationary pressures. You know, one of the headlines over the last month has been just the huge increase in inflation. And, you know, we've had like three decades of virtually no inflation. So we've got kids that are growing up and working now that that, that, they don't even know what inflation is really. And now we're talking about, you know, 6% inflation and it's showing up at the grocery store. It's showing up at the gasoline pumps, et cetera. I'm wondering if Senator Manchin is hearing complaints from his constituents about the high price of gasoline, the high price of groceries, the high price of energy. And he He's translating that into we need to stop, you know, we need to put the brakes on on federal spending because it's causing inflation. Don't I don't know. Not, I was going to say not necessarily that the constituents are, are saying, hey, this bill is going to cause inflation, but he's putting two and two together and coming up with that analysis.
4: Maybe um, might help if he talked to the Fed um, about how they manage inflation. Might, talk, might think might might help if he thought about supply chain issues and their contribution to inflation. Um, I'm not sure he sees the big picture. I'm not sure he puts all the puzzle pieces together. Um, When it's convenient, he'll talk about inflation about how um, we should be fiscally conservative and he's concerned about the debt he's concerned about the deficit, but they're getting ready. they, They wanna pass a defense spending budget that's more than the White House wants. So if you really wanna talk about being fiscally responsible, make the defense make the Defense Department responsible for their spending. The CFO Act was passed, what, a few decades ago, and they still can't, the Defense Department still can't come up with legitimate um, financial statements. They have no idea where half of their resources and half of their spending goes. So if you really wanna talk about being fiscally responsible, start with the Defense Department. Instead of giving them tons more money when they can't manage what they have, and then still complain about, we need to be fiscally responsible,
0: I wanted to ask about one of the policies that's uh, become a sticking point, which is paid family leave. Um, and mm-hmm. it's been in and out of the bill. Apparently, it's it's in at the moment, but uh, not for as long a period of time as, as originally anticipated. Um, First and I, I don't know the answer to this question, which is why I'm asking, but uh, does West Virginia have uh, paid family leave and and uh, okay, so that's that's not no, a policy that um,
4: it would be fabulous here because we have a huge elderly population. a lot of our residents are poor or on um, on federal support in some way. It would be a huge benefit for us. You'd think that would be he'd be championing that. I,
1: I think I, I think in, and pushing back on a couple of things, I, I think there are, are a couple of elements mm-hmm. uh, within the Build Back Better Act that are going to get jettisoned, not because uh, Senator Manchin opposes them, but just because they don't fit within the the rules and restrictions of of reconciliation. You know, when you use yeah. the reconciliation process in the Senate to, you know. Fast track legislation, you know, there are certain rules that 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 you have to abide by, and I think that there are certain things that are going to trip up. And I think paid family leave, and I think the the union backed EV tax credit it is also something that might fall away as well, just because it's it's one of those things that's considered possibly. I'm not, I'm not going to. I'm not going to speak definitively here because I'm not the Senate parliamentarian, but knowing a little bit about the way those rules work and the way she thinks, um, it's it's quite possible that those will be perceived as as budgetary, but merely incidental and sort of fall victim to to the bird rule. So um it's it's quite possible that they get jettisoned from the bill, not because of Senator Manchin, but because the rules won't won't allow them. So it's probably good to 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 pay attention to that.
4: Um, I would note though, I, I would note though that um the adherence to the rules is becoming less of a less important
1: right and and i I'll, I'll admit that you know reconciliation I and mean, but then both parties are guilty of this both parties have used mm-hmm. reconciliation Absolutely. in a way Absolutely. that was not was not intended right it was originally intended mm-hmm. to be a way to reduce deficits and help uh you know mandatory spending and revenue laws comply with the parameters mm-hmm. of the budget resolution that would that preceded the the reconciliation bill and obviously both parties have 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 misappropriated the use of 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 reconciliation so um
4: and and, and, and reconciliation is based on having a budget resolution in the first place Mm -hmm. which is part of the budget process but even that's been disregarded more and more increasingly lately it's like why why bother let's why bother have a process because it seems to be that depending on who's in charge is depending on
1: which rule they want to follow and whether they want to follow any. Which is a nice segue because now you're talking my language. I, you know, having spent so much time <laughs> on Capitol Hill on the budget committee, you're, 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 you're playing in my lane now. So
0: You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman and I uh, have been talking with uh, Professor Karen Kuntz, uh, Associate Professor of Public Administration at West Virginia University. We've been talking about the key role that Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is playing in the upcoming debate on the Build Back Better Act and a lot of things about budget process as well. We're going to be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, uh, Bob Bixby. And for this segment, uh, Phil Smith, the Concord Coalition's National Field Director, is uh, going to join us. And uh, we're talking still with Karen Coons, Associate Professor of Public Administration at West Virginia University. And uh, Karen is uh, introducing now a couple of her students who are gonna join us for uh, the rest of the program. Karen, I'll turn it over to you.
4: Thank you. Um, I'd like to introduce Elizabeth Satterfield. She's a second year graduate student in our, our Master's of Public Administration program. She graduates in three weeks. And Mason Arbogast, he's, you he graduate I believe in May, right? He's also um, in second year in our Master's program.
0: Well, thanks and uh, welcome all to the program. Um, and uh, Mason, I'll I'll start with you, and I want uh, Elizabeth to answer the, the same question, really. But so you're bringing this uh, perspective as uh, you know residents of of West Virginia, but also from a generational perspective. Uh, you know, what is your perception of the the debate that's going on around the Build Back Better Act and Senator Manchin's role in it?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think Dr. Kins really hit the nail on the head um, whenever she used the word disconnect. Um, I definitely think that there is a disconnect between the people of West Virginia um, and Senator Manchin. When you have the majority of residents, the majority of folks living here supporting things like childcare, like parental leave, and then you have our senator that is speaking adamantly against it, um, it, it doesn't line up. And so we hear often, like you all uh, had mentioned earlier, where you know you might hear from the outside that Senator Manchin is speaking for West Virginians and Senator Manchin has the residents of West Virginia in his uh, best interest. That isn't the case from the inside. Um, he isn't doing what we want him to do. He isn't doing what he, we elected him to do. Uh, and it's very frustrating to watch that process happen. Um, it's very frustrating to get same standard emails and the same standard voicemails and call responses whenever you reach out with problems and reach out with concerns. Um, So I guess to like kind of wrap up, my thought is that there is definitely a a disconnect and that uh, Senator Manchin does not speak for West Virginia whenever he is speaking. Elizabeth?
6: Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with Mason and Karen. Um, And saying that there's a gap between what we are or what we're saying here on the ground and what Senator Manchin is communicating in Washington. Uh, If you look over, you know, the press releases that he's put out and the concerns he's had um, with national debt, with inflation, um, making sure that, you know, the bill is, you know, doesn't have, to, it's calling for $1.7 billion, but he's afraid it's actually going to cost us double. All of his concerns, you know, I sympathize with, and I also am concerned about our federal spending and national debt as a young person inheriting these problems. Um, my other concern is that Senator Manchin doesn't necessarily care about these things. He's he's saying that he cares, but perhaps this is more of a political play. Um, he's right now the center of attention which is his favorite place to be, I think and uh, I, I'm not sure that these concerns he's addressing are really what's driving his decisions.
0: Let me just uh, um, open up this, this question about it because you, you mentioned you were concerned about issues of the debt and and uh, what it may mean for future generations. So I mean isn't that consistent with what you and, and others in West Virginia might be thinking?
6: Oh, I, I would agree. Um, yeah, I, other people in West Virginia, especially I think young people who are, you know, entering the workforce and thinking about politics more critically, um, starting out in, in their young lives are concerned about these major issues, national debt, climate change, um, yeah, inequalities, um, wealth disparities, we're all very concerned about these things. And when Senator Manchin, you know, uses his as a mouthpiece to communicate, like he says some of these things and we it seems like he agrees with us um and he's communicating them, but I'm not sure that he genuinely believes that these are concerns. You know, he I think some of it is just uh um lip service more than it is actual genuine concern. And I don't know that he's listening to us, you know, it's it's more of him just reverberating, you know, kind of coming up with excuses um and not and and but no solutions. I mean, I, I wanna
0: I wanna bring Phil into the conversation in a minute, but I wanna um, follow up with a couple of questions that we talked about in, in the earlier segment on specific policies and uh, get your impressions on whether these are things you, you support or or don't, or think they should be done in a different way. Uh, we talked about paid family leave. Uh, th- there are a number of things in the Big the Build Back Better bill that are being debated that have to do with uh, you know family friendly policies like child tax credits child care subsidies uh paid family leave is it your uh, do you have any concern that they that they are too expensive or that they're not being paid for adequately or or that uh that you think they should do them
5: in an even uh broader scale i mean i think money when we're do- talking about things like uh family rights and human rights and, 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 social issues, money shouldn't necessarily be the concern. Um, when we look at West Virginia, for example, we have 54.4% of, uh, kids being raised by their grandparents, you know, or a ton of children, uh, being raised in the foster system or maybe not even in a foster system at all. And we keep asking ourselves, oh, what is wrong? What is wrong? Is it the families? Is it the school systems? Is it, The opportunities for kids, but when they don't have a place of home and they don't have a place of residency and they don't have a family that is consistently raising them, that is a problem. That is an issue. And so, yeah, it might be a lot of money. It might cost a little bit more than we might be comfortable with. But if we're going to start addressing a lot of the issues that we're talking about, and if we're going to start dealing with a lot of these problems that the next generation and our generation are facing and are going to face, then, then that cost doesn't uh, that cost doesn't matter at the end of the day. Um, I would like to hear Elizabeth's.
6: Well, I I agree that these are you know very pressing issues that need addressed um, immediately. Uh, I disagree that cost isn't an issue, um, and I think you know if we're gonna spend billions of dollars on these things, I just want to make sure that we can pay for it. Um, and if, you know, there's a lot of different ways that they could be, it could be paid for. And I think changing how we we tax is, you know, the main thing and getting rid of loopholes for the wealthy and for corporations and holding them accountable for their fair share is part of that. But I, you know, I, I'm concerned about passing a, a, a very large bill that we can't pay for right now. Um, and so if, you know, there can be some type of you know, balance, then I, then, you know, I, I feel more comfortable.
0: Hill.
2: This is a fascinating conversation. And um, I, I, one of the things that I look at, I'm, I'm coming to you by the way, from Athens, Georgia, home of the university of Georgia today. And, and I do a lot of work on college campuses and it really does absolutely fascinate me to speak with young people and to hear your concerns. And one of the questions I have are what are some of the barriers that are holding your generation back from addressing these major issues? It, one of the things I see is that, You know, on election day, it seems like uh, there's an old saying that, you know, senior citizens will crawl across cactus plants to get to the polls and vote, but young people oftentimes will sleep through election day. Now, that doesn't always apply, only most of the time. (laughs) So uh, what what are the um, what are the barriers you think that are holding back younger people from from getting more involved and having a stronger voice?
6: We talked about this um, just recently. We had a conversation about engagement um, as youth. And I think there's uh, there's a lot of apathy. And I'm in, in various groups. I interact with a lot of different people my age. And there's people who are really engaged, more engaged than I probably ever will be. And then there's others who, you know, they don't even know when election day is. They're not registered to vote. They, you know, don't seem to have any interest in any type of civic engagement. Um, and I think part of it comes back to, how are we engaging youth at a younger age? And Mason and I talked about, you know, he was very active in 4 H. I was very active in Scouts and in my church. And, you know, both of us were very active in our high schools. And we've been active since then all through college in different organizations. And so, and that started with a very young age. And I think part of our issue is, you know, if, if people, if children aren't engaged, you know, there might not be. And if their parents aren't, are also not engaged, then there is going to be a disconnect um, when, you know, children come become young adults and have to make decisions. They you know, aren't equipped to do so and are not interested in doing so. They don't see it as, as something they should do. Uh, so I think part of the problem comes back much further beyond, you know, college or high school years.
5: Yeah. And to expand on that, I mean, I definitely agree with Elizabeth that it is it is about engagement and it's about getting to people early. Um, but I would say that there are also a ton of other barriers and that all of these barriers are kind of related in the same way that they come back to money and they come back to the wealth disparity that we're seeing in our nation. Uh, you know, people have been struggling to make a living wage for 40 years now, and that's not even considering the onslaught of other like societal mandates that are constantly coming up right so we tell people that they have to go to college to make a decent living but then they spend the next 30 years of their life paying back student debt that they've accumulated or we talk about how healthcare is a human right and that nobody should ever be denied health care but then tragedy strikes and they're in debt for the next 20 30 40 years um and it doesn't have to be this way we elect people every two years to make decisions and to change the rules and to make life a little bit better, but they don't do anything. Uh, it's always, oh, the other side is preventing us from doing anything. Oh, it's out of our hands, yada, yada, yada. But that has been the same excuse for ever. You know, it was during Clinton, during Bush, during Obama, then Trump, and now Biden, it's always, oh, if we were in power, if our party was making decisions, then things would be different. That's not true. And we're seeing that that's not true. Um, And so our decision makers aren't gonna be making the right decisions until we fix this wealth disparity, until we fix the money that is influencing the decisions every single day, every single decision.
0: Yeah, we're gonna have to take our second break. Uh, (laughs) this is a fine time to take a commercial break. Um, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Phil Smith and I are talking to uh, uh, Mason Arbogast and Elizabeth Satterfield, who are public policy students at the graduate students at West Virginia University. We're talking about the uh, the future and uh, the importance of their senator, Senator Joe Manchin, to the reconciliation, build back, better debate. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm joined by Phil Smith, the National Field Director of the Concord Coalition. And we're talking to Mason Arbogast and Elizabeth Satterfield, who are public administration graduate school uh, uh, students at uh, West Virginia University. Their professor, uh, Karen Kuntz, uh is also with us. Is, what kind of engagement? Uh, do you have? Are you able to have with elected officials? I mean that that you know part of the disconnect we talked about a disconnect before. Part of it can be uh, uh, just uh, people not uh, talking to one another, <laughs> communicating with one another. And I know town hall meetings, which we used to do all the time, are you know just not as popular anymore. They turn into um, shouting matches, or people are even concerned about security these days, which truly frightens me. Um, but is there are are there ways in which uh, politically active people in West Virginia are are, are able to interact with the, with their elected officials?
6: I think that this can this happens more often informally than formally. Um, I, it's it's hard. Um, I think it's it's very hard to reach our state and you know, national elected officials because you call them and you talk to whoever sits at the front desk. They say, "Oh, I'll communicate your message." They probably don't. No, they don't. (laughs) Yeah, and and or you send an email, a very thoughtful email, and I, you know, I don't know how many times I've done this, and I get, you know, a a form letter back, and they don't care. But I've contacted my county representative, who sits on our state legislature, about um, a historic tax credit, which is something very important to me. And she emailed me back and said, "We got it done." She's like, "I pushed for it, and we got it passed." And I mean, I know that my email. Didn't probably change. It might not have changed her mind. She might have already was going to vote for it, but she communicated with me, and you know, and I felt heard, Um, and that was at you know more at the local level. Um, But I think informally, and we we aren't gathering in person as much right now. But even before COVID, civic engagement and you know social engagement was way down. You know, we're not we're not gathering together to have. Uh, you know, bowling leagues or, you know, do, doing different activities like that together. You know, people used to do all kinds of stuff together and now we're more isolated than ever. Um, and so if you're isolated, discourse goes way down um, and moves online, which we all know is, is kind of dangerous and you lose a lot if you can't communicate in person. Uh, so if we can find ways to gather informally that aren't necessarily political, I think uh, solutions can, can be found.
0: One of the things that that comes to mind, and i'll I'll let Phil get in a question in a second, but i, I while well, it's on the top of my head, and I'll address this to mason, but uh, uh feel free to answer the last question as well um is is social media a, a problem or is it a good thing i mean because this is something that just wasn't around in in my day when when I was a a young person in politics uh or in public policy, even so. And so I, I don't necessarily have a feel for it, but um, is it, so how does that contribute or, or, or detract from the uh, civic engagement?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. Um, I think social media, like most things, has its pros and its cons. Um, I think that it is a great tool to use. It provides instant connection with most people um, around the world. And, and that is incredibly helpful. That is incredibly beneficial as a society. The issue is the type of engagement that we're doing. Um, and this is also related to your last question about you know, talking with our elected officials. We can sit here and talk about climate change all day, right? But Morgantown, West Virginia cannot fix climate change. Really the United States as a whole cannot fix climate change uh, or wealth disparities, right? Morgantown, West Virginia cannot fix the wealth disparity. but if we start engaging folks about things that matter and engaging folks about decisions that they can make and changes that can happen, I think that is way more beneficial than what we're seeing now. Um, so for example, the build back better plan or the infrastructure plan, you can't get meaningful feedback on a document over a thousand pages from the majority of Americans. It's not going to happen because, you know, half of, Congress isn't reading that plan. You're not gonna. You can't expect citizens to also read that plan, but you can talk about the schools in your district, or you can talk about the road conditions on on different roads in your area, or you can talk about uh, maybe the healthcare costs or education costs that you and your family have have gained over the years. Um, so I think going to your back to your social media question is a great tool. Social media has a lot of benefits and it, and it provides a lot of opportunity. We just need to make sure that we are using it to its potential and that we are being engaged in the ways that, that are impactful and meaningful.
2: So I guess one of my questions for you guys would be, what are some of your solutions at the macro level? And maybe, maybe we'll start with you for um, solving some of our long-term challenges. I mean, when you look at some of the unsustainability trends in the federal budget, you know, healthcare costs are going through the roof. Uh, When you look at our social security program, most young people believe uh, that we're not going to have any social security, which of course is wrong, that we're going to have some sort of social security. We're just going to have to reform it in some ways to make it sustainable over the long time. Um, Obviously, you've talked a little bit about taxes and revenue, uh, Mason, but what would be some of your ideas about sustainability? And I'll, I'll add one last little tidbit. One thing that really concerns me is interest on the debt. We're paying right now, you know, in the neighborhoods of $300 billion. And in the 2030s, it won't it won't be surprising if we're paying a trillion dollars annually, just simply servicing our debt. And I know young people are familiar with debt because you have, you know, your college debt and so forth. So does, does that concern you as well? Yeah, it's a huge concern.
5: Uh, sustainability is an issue that I don't think comes up enough. Um, whenever we're talking about a lot of these policies, we're looking for a solution right now. And we're not thinking about that solution maybe 10 or 15 years down the road. Um, I'm gonna pull out social security since you mentioned it. Um, I actually just wrapped up a project uh, for Karen's class actually about, uh, you know how do we raise a bunch of money? How do we fix a lot of these issues that we as a country are facing? Um, and one of those issues that I tackled was social security Um, and the short answer and I hate to sound like a broken record but the short answer is to make people pay their fair share Uh, and sometimes people might have to pay a little bit more than their fair share but that's totally fine when you're making millions and millions and millions of dollars so uh, with social security the tax for social security is a flat 12.4% tax that goes up to about $142,800. And then after that number, you no longer pay into social security, um, which seems okay because you're paying your share at that point. Uh, But there are way more people paying under their share than there are paying over their share. And that's why we're seeing the funding issue that we are, that uh, I think I saw a report that social security is to run out by 2037 um, if we don't touch it. And so, Um, going back to, I guess the short answer is we need to make people pay more into social security. We need to raise social Security's um, tax just a hair, uh, following historic precedent, nothing new. And then, uh, also raising the retirement age, just a little, um, people are working much longer. People are living much longer. Uh, and so if they're drawing out social security for 15, 20, 30, maybe even 40 years, um, That is a problem. Uh, So, long answer, short answer.
0: In in doing uh, work on social security uh, over the years, one of the one of the things about paying or or or, you know raising the cap is, and I'm I'm I I think that that's going to have to be part of a a solution. I I agree with you on that. The question is to where, uh, if you eliminated the cap which would bring in a ton of money, you'd also under the system be paying more benefits to people who clearly don't need them because they'd be earning more benefits. And so that's one of the the, the trade-offs there. So sometimes people come back and say, well, but we raise the cap, but we don't give them any more benefits based on that. And then that undermines the social insurance concept of social security. So there are a lot of you know, there are a lot of trade-offs there, but uh, it sounds like you've really fought through that thing. We're, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but Elizabeth, are there? do you have any magic solutions? <laughs> I hope I, you do.
6: I, I, I don't think that I do have any magic, <laughs> um, but I, I will say that sustainability is you know something on the forefront of my mind and on the minds of many of my classmates at WVU and other young people in the state. Um, and when I think about sustainability, I think again I bring it back to like a regional state level. And West Virginia recently had a national park uh, declared, and we're seeing an influx of of people coming into the state to to see the New River Gorge National Park, which is wonderful. W- West Virginia needs income, you know, we need revenue, but um, you know we have to think about things sustainably. Is this you know how is this going to impact the environment? How does it impact housing costs? People who live in that area their entire lives, you know, can they afford to keep living there? Um, What does it do about, um, you know, jobs? Are are they seasonal jobs without any benefits? So, I think um, just that as an example of, you know, what happens when you get a national park, um, you know, what's what's that going to do to long-term sustainability for the region and for the state? Um, That's something that West Virginia has been uh, kind of wrestling with the last year or so.
0: Well, we're going to have to End it there, but I, because I, we've sort of run out of time, uh, but I, I really appreciate uh, Karen, Elizabeth, and Morgan, your contributions this morning. It's been a really interesting discussion both about some uh, West Virginia politics and uh, Senator Manchin's role, but uh, even uh, you know about the broader issues of, of, of the future and getting the perspective of uh, a younger generation that's having to look ahead and, and grapple with these problems. So we really appreciate it. That's all for this week. I want to thank our guests. I want to thank Phil Smith and Tori Gorman of the Concord Coalition for joining us and for you, the listeners, for tuning in. Uh, This is Bob Bixby, your host. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.